I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. I'm Ethan Warren. And we love to watch. We love to watch The Trials of a Long Distance Relationship. You're all I've ever wanted, but I'm terrified of you. Seek my castle may be haunted, but I'm terrified of you. I've cast my spell on millions, but I'm terrified of you. Maybe I do this from the ceiling, but I'm terrified of you. I wait my whole life to bite the right one. Then you come along and that freaks me out. So I'm frightened. Ooh, Dracula's I never ran from no one, but I'm terrified of you. See, my heartbeat is a slow one, but I'm terrified of you. I've been around for ages, but I'm terrified of you. Run my thing across the stage, but yet I'm terrified of you. I wait my whole life to the right one. Then you come along and that freaks me out So I'm frightened Dracula's wedding uh, You know I'm terrified Hey Peter, hey Ethan Hey guys Hey, hey, hey guys Ethan, it's your first time on the show Welcome here <laughs> um, Hey Ethan, um, we're, we just don't bring up Night of the Living Dead to this Aaron He's so still a little uncomfortable. sore about it yeah, he's a little sore about it. So you just don't do, just don't do anything. Just pretend like it's your first time. Oh, hey guys! Sorry, I fell asleep. Oh, <laughs> I'm gonna, what's I'm, going on? Yeah, I'm gonna step outside the bit for a second. And say I actually had a dream last night that we were recording the episode, and it was Marcus again. <laughs> I was like, "Where's Aaron?" It was like it doesn't matter. I'm expecting at any moment I'm about to wake up because my nightmare is Ethan coming on my show. And then saying he had a dream that Marcus uh, was the host again and then not caring about that. Yeah. So, hold on. Let me just pinch myself here and the episode should be over. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm of course kidding. I feel bad. I made so many jokes and a few that we had to edit out because they were deemed too mean towards uh, Marcus who stepped in at the last minute when I had nice a fever – a very Genuine nice boy. hero, Marcus yeah. Jones. Uh, you know, I had a fever of 103, um, and he jumped in and did a great job, and Ethan was a great guest. So um, I will step outside my own joke because I, I hope that Marcus is not, like, now crying every time he listens to our podcast. But, yeah, definitely, if you're, you know, if you're going through a back catalog, skip that one. <laughs> it's actually it's actually a really really solid episode it's a pretty like, good episode i'm gonna we were really we were really passionate about it marcus uh knew knew the beats pretty well uh yeah no eventually you we're gonna release a special edition episode of that podcast where i uh record new dialogue over marcus's and just splice it all in there or but just, uh, you have to record marcus's lines in your own voice <laughs> exactly, and, including call myself Marcus Jones, so it's especially confusing for people. I would love to hear that. It's always good to start your podcast with a three-minute digression going up your own ass about one particular episode you did once. It's very welcoming to new listeners, or and that's what we try to do. Case. Yeah, no, I definitely didn't do it, Ethan. <laughs> <sighs> So anyways, it's, it's we love to watch. It's a podcast, talk about movies, uh, usually in sets of four. Uh, and this month is February, the month of love, the month where sometimes a nice lady or a man, the, the pheromones are in the air, the spring is right around the corner. And so they're like, I'm going to fuck a monster. 
And so this is <laughs> Love and Monster Month. And we're doing uh, 1992's Francis Ford Coppola movie, Bram Stoker's Dracula. And we're very happy to welcome back Ethan Warren. Ethan, in lieu of – I know you brought a game. I did. In in lieu of uh, doing three things about yourself, let's spend a couple minutes and talk about some very exciting thing that has happened in your life recently, which is – now, correct me if I'm wrong – you were woken up at 4 a.m. by a child. That is that is accurate. Mm-hmm. She was just screaming her head off. Now, does, <laughs> does your child – do does, does she know – that she's not just waking Ethan Warren, her dad, up anymore. She is waking up big-time writer-director, a double threat. Actually, triple threat. I think I saw a producer credit in there. Big-time Hollywood mogul Ethan Warren. I think she does know, and I think that uh, it's sort of her way of like putting me in my place. It's <laughs> like, if I were just some dad, she'd let me sleep. But it's like, don't get too big for your britches, dad. you got to get up and smell my butt. Confirm whether or not I'm just screaming at you for no reason or because, you know. So anyways, yeah. So, Ethan, you did have a film recently released. Peter and I both watched it last night. We're going to tell you a little bit about our thoughts on it uh, live on air. What an exciting surprise. What an exciting moment for you. But, uh, yeah, surprise reviews of, of stuff that you spent years of your life doing are always fun. But why don't you, before we tell our audience what we think of your movie, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, the movie? Sure. So, Westifer is a uh, little micro-budget indie romance road movie that I did write, direct, and produce. We shot it over the course of 10 states, 3,000 miles uh, in three weeks a few years ago. Uh, And it was this real sort of little, like, scrappy production that we did almost on the scale of, like, a student film. Uh, It was just really two actors and a crew of about 11 people. And an RV and a couple of cars. And we just drove across the countries telling this story that uh, is, I describe it as a romance with a twist of mystery. Uh, it's it's uh, inspired by the Toynbee Tiles, uh, which is this unexplained phenomenon that you can look up at your leisure. Uh, and we just sort of drove around and, and captured these amazing uh, locations all over the country. And we had these two amazing actors with really amazing chemistry and sort of caught that... Uh, friendship developing as as they uh traveled in and got to know each other in real time and as we drove uh you know we, we started shifting more and more away from the script and more towards them really writing their own dialogue or in some cases just entirely improvised sequences and it ended up with something that it's it's pretty exciting and pretty unique um i think especially in the world of of micro budget indies um to be showing as much um of, of the scope of america as we did I, I really loved it. I, and I'm so glad that is the case because, you know, we were having you on this podcast. Could have been and so I, uncomfortable. It could, well, <laughs> I, you know, I don't, I don't like lying to the guest for a while. Um, that wouldn't have been as much fun. But I really did love it. And especially – so it was kind of amazing to me to see the movie because the movie, it, it takes place a lot of the um, Midwestern, South Dakota – uh, Montana. So I recognized a lot of locations that I had been or had traveled through. I've been to the Mitchell Corn Palace, been to Mount Rushmore. I, I feel like those those kind of curvy wooded roads were very familiar to me. And I was extremely impressed because it's definitely a movie where uh, the scenery and the locales really help kind of, you know, kind of add to the atmosphere of the movie that you're watching. But 
and this is really this is where I'm going to kiss your ass for a second, Ethan. It is so fucking well directed that I feel like you could easily just sit and let the scenery do all the work for you. But like the shots are framed beautifully, like the use of shadows and natural light is beautiful. And then all the music and the score and the soundtrack behind it, like really enhance all the atmosphere. So it was definitely a um, like visually and orally a very uh, enchanting and entrancing movie. It is beautifully produced. Um, and also, I made a drive from Chicago to uh, San Diego a, about a year ago when I moved out here. And I know how hard it is, actually, to shoot nature photography that <laughs> yeah. looks good. Um, so, because uh, I was going through a lot of similar type locales. We didn't go as far north, but similar type locales. And, like, it is it, – it's not something you're just like, yeah, let the – let the trees do the talk and it'll be fine. Like there's there's a genuine like cohesion to how the whole movie works. I'm I'm really I, I know I'm probably uh <laughs> it's probably slightly uncomfortable to have people corner you like this, but I have to talk up um uh, how much I really liked your movie. Well, thank you so much. I mean I'm I'm doing a lot of this these last couple of weeks because it, it did just come out on uh yeah, all of the usual streaming services and uh on demand cable packages. Um so I've been doing a ton of interviews uh, the last couple of weeks, and I'm I'm trying to keep myself from like slipping into that very sort of, you know, precise, composed. I don't know who these guys are. Interview mode. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'll try to spare you all of like my typical talking points. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you're, you're highlighting all that uh, the cinematography stuff, and I, I don't want to take too much credit because uh, my my DP, um, who's is a good friend of mine. Uh, Cameron Bryson. I mean, that that is all him. Um, I, I had so little understanding of um, really like all of the technical stuff of what it, it takes to make a movie. And it, it wouldn't be what it was, uh, even, you know, a fraction of what it is without him, because uh, he was just over there making all of the beautiful images while I worked with the actors and, and really sort of crafted that. So it was it was a really sort of close relationship that we had putting it together. So, Peter, that's your problem. Next time you move across the country, take a DP with you. Bring along a genius. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, really. If, if you uh -huh. can. Hey, uh, honey, we're going to move across the country. Who, who's the guy in the back seat? That's Greg. He's <laughs> he's going to be making sure the magic really really pops. You said you wanted to put up Instagrams, right? I mean, come on. Like, are we going to do this? <laughs> do this? Instagrams aren't as instant as you think. They take work, honey. <laughs> and then Ethan can come in and be like, um, you're coming off a little harsh right now. This is supposed to be sort of the bonding part of the journey. Like, you guys just left Chicago five minutes ago. Yeah, we're, we're not ready for the climate. <laughs> yeah, can you guys not fight yet? Because I feel like this is going to be a very different movie if you it's fight really, This beginning. is an act three scene. <laughs> can we save some of the fireworks, please? Guys, um, I don't know how to light a good car fight. My one, <laughs> my one weakness, I gotta tell you. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, uh, but the actors, too, you know, I, I'm not gonna lie, when you're watching, I've... I made student films. I know a lot of my friends that make student films. You can be a great writer and have a good sense of like what directing is as like a kind of an amateur or first time filmmaker. You realize how important professional actors are or like, yeah, <laughs> because I mean, there's professional actors that are household names that we talk about how bad performances they give in movies sometimes. We might actually be doing a little bit of that later tonight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, 
Yeah. So, <laughs> exactly. You know, when you're watching these types of micro-budget films, I feel like you have to kind of steel yourself to accepting a level of performance and try to find the charm around that. And I was pleasantly surprised that the two leads in your movie, uh, you're right. It, it feels like a very natural romance. It feels like the chemistry is real. Nothing really feels forced. It does feel like two people kind of becoming closer as a journey goes on, which since I'm assuming you kind of shot it in, uh, mostly in order based on just the way you would have to drive across the country. I'm assuming some of some of that comes from from the fact that it was. Yeah, it was two people getting to know each other and probably spending a lot of time together. It's also just fun to have one of these movies, these um, road movies that feel a little looser, more grounded, more down to earth, that, that, that aren't necessarily about like, this is rigid plotting moment by moment, like this scene exists for this purpose. Like, it's fun to have movies like this and then also have in the back of your head like, but what the fuck is that weird thing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love that. Obviously, that's a, that's a lot of uh, ass kissing uh, or something. I was I was truly truly swept up in it. It it's not I don't want to say Malik as a touch point because that feels so lazy because it's like nature and Malik, but it did give me that hypnotic Malik sense of when there's a lot of beautiful imagery and um, compelling acting and dialogue and good music where it's not a straight through line with plot, but all of those elements kind of kind of combine to give you that that feeling where the movie's close to over and you realize, oh shit, that went by really fast and I really got sucked into that. And it's not sucked into movies like I normally do because they're super plotty, but it's because of just every everything that's going on in this movie absorbed me in a way that I, you know, I wasn't even realize it was happening. That is that is very nice to hear. Especially, you know, I'm so close to the thing at this point that you know, I've seen it so many times that watching it feels like it takes about eighteen hours. <laughs> So knowing that it flows nicely for people is, is good. So it's it's really great. Check it out. We'll definitely um, include links and all that stuff at the end. It's not it's not that often you get the chance to talk to someone whose movie just came out on a podcast and when you have this much positive to say about it. So I'm, I'm yeah, so glad. So we needed to embarrass you a little bit before we got to the silliness. Hey, I mean, I always I, I like to talk about it. Ethan, you you brought us a quiz. So Ethan. What is this game? What are we in here? What's the name of it? What is the game? What's the game? So I, I made a, a game. It's called You Don't Know Drack, which is a very cute uh, play on the, the old game You Don't Know Jack. But I don't know what the format of that game was. So the similarities only extend as far as the title. Can I screw <laughs> the other player? Sure. Anytime you want. When this game gets adapted into a TV version, will Paul Rubens be the host? No, he's going to be the host. He's here. These are, these are all, you don't know, Jack, references. So uh, last time I, I came on, we were talking about a zombie movie, which gave me an opportunity to make a quiz all about zombie movies. And now here I am again with vampire movies, but I decided to focus in this time on just Dracula movies. Because if you look at the Wikipedia list of Dracula movies, there's like dozens of them. Oh, it's, yeah. It's a public domain figure, so... I put together a little multiple choice quiz. We're going to be talking about the various movies that are inspired by or sequels to or adaptations of Dracula. And in each case, I'm going to give you a question 
and you have to choose which of my answers is the real one. And I, I forgot to flip a coin, so here I have the uh, broken off cork of the bottle of Francis Ford Coppola wine that I'm drinking <laughs> in honor of this movie. And we're going to we're gonna flip this. And uh, Aaron, your heads, and, and uh, Pete, your tails. All right, Pete, Can't... you, you, you want to go first or second? I'll go first. All right, this first question is for Pete. I still want to see all the video evidence of this, but go on. I have a GoPro <laughs> on my head at all times. Okay, first question. In 1979's Nocturna... Dracula's granddaughter is tempted away from, from her life of vampirism by what force that is more powerful than blood? Is it A, Scientology, B, Cocaine, C, Disco, or D, she becomes a morning news personality? I'm going to go with Disco. You're correct. She gets tempted away by the by the uh, magical allure of disco music. I imagine by the third act, the the bloodletting and the disco are mixed together. But maybe it's just a disco movie. Uh, I don't know. I didn't watch any of these. These are entirely based on. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, IMDb. I know. I uh, last time I made this mistake too, where you were you talked about some other like random like a uh, p- porny sounding zombie movie and i was like i bet and you're like didn't see it <laughs> didn't see it <laughs> that's more that's more of the uh, effort than i feel like putting into this aaron question in 1979's love at first bite oh, dracula is dracula is expelled from his castle by the romanian government because they want to turn it into what is it a a training facility for gymnast for uh, gymnastics <laughs> <laughs> B, a rock club, C, a Catholic church, or D, a zoo. Oof. I feel like Romania. Go with gymnastics. You're correct. This is already going so much better than the zombie quiz. <laughs> ended up at zero to zero. Pete, it's time for a question. In the 1958 film The Return of Dracula, which is more or less framed as a sequel to the original film, uh, it was given a different name when it was released in the UK. What name did the film The Return of Dracula go by in the UK? A, the Marvelous... Oh, I'm the Return of Dracula! <laughs> Not that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to guess it wasn't the one that Aaron said because he didn't no. make the game up. <laughs> was it A, The Marvelous Master of Terror, B, The Villain Returns, C, the Fantastic Disappearing Man, or D, Pages from a Virgin's Diary. Pages from a Virgin's Diary? Incorrect. That's the uh, title of the, the ballet Dracula film made by Guy Madden. Oh, yeah! I fake out. Rats. Aaron, you're not going to get the point, but do you want to guess if it's The Marvelous Master of Terror, The Villain Returns, or The Fantastic Disappearing Man? <laughs> <laughs> My guess is it's The Villain Returns? Incorrect. I just wanted to say all those goofy titles again. Uh, the, the 1958 <laughs> film The Return of Dracula was released in the UK as The Fantastic Disappearing Man. Hey, England? Everyone knew who Dracula was in 1958. What's your fucking problem, England? I would, yeah. I really want to know, but I didn't look it up because I didn't put that much work into this. Also, why would you make a sequel? Why would you rename it so that it sounds more like a sequel to a different universal monster movie that's really true oh okay. fucking england all their chimney sweeps aaron you're up again <laughs> yeah 
in 1966's Billy the Kid versus Dracula, how does Billy Classic the Kid... Classic rivalry. How does the famous gunslinger Billy the Kid waylay Dracula long enough to drive a silver scalpel into his heart? Does he distract him by A, the monkeys, cameoing as a barbershop quartet, distract Dracula with a song. B, he just throws his gun at Dracula's head. (laughs) C, he trips Dracula with some marbles. Or D, his girlfriend, Marion Van Helsing, distracts Dracula with some firecrackers. Firecrackers were pretty big in the 60s, based on my history. I wish it was like the Kevin McAllister number number C. Number C? Oh, it's going to be a long night. Uh, I'll go D. I'll do the firecrackers. Uh, incorrect. Apparently, he just deadass throws the gun at Dracula. Throws his gun! <laughs> that's, that's the one I wanted it to be. It actually got a laugh out of me that was legitimate as you said it. Well, then you are <laughs> apparently going to love this movie. But, okay, so this one, <laughs> this one's to Pete. Uh, so there's a, a movie from 2004 called Dracula 3000, which... Sidebar, the, the captain of the ship does have the last name Van Helsing and is played by, like, Casper Van Dien or something. It's a sequel so, to Dracula 2000, which I've seen. It, it it may or may not be. I think on the Wikipedia page it said it is not actually a sequel to Dracula What? 2000. Oh, my God. That's crazy. So, it takes place on a spaceship. My life's a lie. And so, Pete, in this movie, vampires are repeatedly staked by what item that seems somewhat incongruous to be on a spaceship? A, baseball bats. B, hockey sticks, C, broken up banjo necks, or D, pool cues. Oh, man. Um, I'm between hockey sticks and pool cues. I feel like... I feel like let's go hockey sticks. I'm sorry, you're incorrect. It is pool cues. It's pool cues, yeah. God damn, pool cues makes the most sense, but I was like, yeah, it's on a spaceship, maybe there's, you know... Mid-2000s, they had some hockey players on board. That's what you were thinking in your head? There was just a lot of... Yeah, yeah. I was thinking a lot of mumbles in my head. (laughs) Mostly mumbling in my head. (laughs) Okay. We have one more regular round question, and then we're going to the bonus round. Aaron, in... Okay, now here's a question. Have you seen Andy Warhol's 1974 film, Blood for Dracula? Uh, No, I haven't. Okay. I realized after... Hold on. Give me an hour and a half. Well, it's it's like a pretty, you know, it's on the Criterion Collection. Like, this one is is the most legitimate of the movies that I've mentioned, and it's, like, super X-rated. I don't know. That Billy Jack one sounded pretty good. Or Billy the Kid. Billy the Kid. <laughs> wasn't Billy Jack. Billy Jack versus Frankenstein versus Dracula. <laughs> so, yeah. in Andy Warhol's 1974 film Blood for Dracula, Dracula travels to Italy, but finds his life complicated by what issue? A... He needs to feed on virgins, but there aren't enough virgins in Italy. B. He falls in love with a stripper whose father happens to be Abraham Van Helsing. C. He meets Frankenstein in a crossover from 1973's Flesh for Frankenstein, and they have sex. Or D. He's followed around by a creepy homeless busker named Gianni Renfield. And this isn't going to be one of those all of the above type situations. It's not, but it would be great mm. if it was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go with I'm going to go with A. You are correct. That seems like an Andy Warhol-like conflict. He needs to feed on virgins, but there aren't enough virgins. Yeah, it likes, like irony it or something. I don't know. Super ironic. Okay, so this question, this was I was calling this bonus the blue shell question in a Mario Kart reference, but if, if it's more you don't know Jack-esque to make it a, a screw question, be my guest because apparently you're the expert here. 
I think it's a lightning round at the end of the you know, Jack. I played it a lot on Xbox 360. Okay, well, we're going to keep this with the blue shell question then. So, right. Aaron, because you're currently in the lead with a score of 2-1, oh, to one, you can either take this last question or you can pass it to Pete. If you take it and you get it wrong, you lose the game. But if you pass it and Pete gets it right, he wins and you lose. So how confident are you? You know what? I, I'm going to take the question. Okay. In the 1978 movie Zoltan. Oh, shouldn't have done it. Dracula <laughs> receives second billing behind the eponymous Zoltan. Who is a... Is Zoltan a superhero, a chimpanzee, a dog, or a baby? Oh. I call this a trivia quiz. It's really more of a guessing game because none of these questions are knowable. <laughs> How many guesses do I get? I'll start the bidding at four. You get one. Let's compromise and say two and a half. You get one. Uh, I'm, I I feel like it is. Uh, yeah, I got to go with my first typing. choice. Are you looking this up? No, it's not me typing. I think it's Peter. Um, he's a, I think uh, Peter. Yeah, he's typing. Let's um, him out of the round. Um, it, uh, I think it's superhero. I'm going to go with superhero. But I, I have a sneaking back of the head suspicion in his dog. So by fate, superhero. It was dog. I'm so sorry. God damn it. Pete, you have won the game. Why are you sorry to report that? Report it happily. No, I was reporting it to the news, and they're very disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> I have the Thank here. you so much, Ethan. This game is truly a great one, just like your last one. I'm really, you I'm really like proud of your play on words, but there wasn't. <laughs> no, just a dramatic pause because uh, maybe I forgot English for a few seconds. Mm. Um, thank you so much for bringing that game. That was wonderful. You could say like this game truly didn't suck yeah yeah Vampires. yeah this game doesn't bite um drackety drack don't drack back <laughs> um i have a differing opinion that i will keep to myself on how the game went uh i <laughs> feel like i did really well for most of it uh got pretty close at the end and then was uh stabbed in the back by my best friends <laughs> Uh, do, you, do you guys want to talk about uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula dead and loving it? <laughs> I watched yeah, the movie. <laughs> love to watch we're gonna we're gonna talk about this movie i feel like i don't know if i was gonna rate the rapport that's going on i would say number one peter and me uh number two ethan and peter and then like kind of a little bit below number three aaron and ethan i feel like i'm losing a lot of games today uh on the last segment they were referencing stuff that i wasn't present for it's kind of it's kind of a thing but Ethan, do, you remember, do you remember when Marcus was like, do you remember when Marcus was like, he was carrying in that Chinese food and he dropped it? And, we were, and I was like, smooth move, Ferguson. No, that was that a 30 Rock episode. Was <laughs> hilarious. So should I just like whip up this? Okay, here we go. Aaron, pop quiz. Uh, who directed the Francis Ford Coppola film Bram Stoker's Dracula? Who? 
Has he directed any other movies I know? He's directed The Godfather parts one through three, as well as Apocalypse Now and the Robin Williams classic Jack. Oh, Jack, Francis Ford Coppola. You you won the game. Congratulations. And it was worth twice oh. as much as the last game. Hey, Ethan, <laughs> Ethan, do you remember when uh, we were both uh, admins in a parenting group? I do remember that. Peter, do you remember that? Do you remember when uh, that happened? No, because I was you ever not been in that group? group. Peter, you ever been in that one? You ever no, been in I that any, Facebook group? Any children. All right, I feel like we've reset. I'm feeling a little better. <laughs> Everybody's fine. <laughs> uh, Ethan, I'm sorry. Aaron's working through some stuff right now. Hey, Aaron, do you want to give us some alternate taglines and we'll walk through Dracula? Sure. Uh, you don't think my vibe is aggressive and off-putting? Or do you want to just... <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm it's killing a... your vibe so much as your vibe is killing me. Okay, it's a tone I'm trying. <laughs> Jilted well, this lover. A, this is a movie about an aggressive and off-putting man who is also yeah. hopelessly sexually alluring, so. Oh, yeah. No, that's that's definitely one of us. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, alternate taglines. What if, uh, what if Dracula, but uh, bigger? What? Um, it is, it, it, it's weird because it's bigger than the, uh, the Todd Browning Dracula, but it, uh, feels so much shorter to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't, I'm not a huge fan of Todd Browning's Just about everything uh, Dracula. than the Todd Browning Dracula. That is, that is a strange That's a small thing. movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we'll get, to, we'll get to it, but it is, uh, I, I think that the... I think that I'm glad that the film dynamic has swung back in recent years to be like, Bela Lugosi's great. He's great. Yeah. One of the greatest horror performances ever. But like anytime he's not on frame, like, eh. <laughs> All right. Uh, I, got, I got one more alternate tagline. Hey, hey, kid. You want to see someone fuck a dead body? <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing, because my alternate tagline would be like, what if Dracula, but like a thousand percent hornier? <laughs> oh yeah, that's his. That's his whole mode. There's a lot of you know that move in movies where people like take their their hand and it's like open palm, but like they stretch the fingers back as far as they go, and then they slowly rub them against someone else. That's like eighty percent of this movie is that exact. well uh, it's funny because like uh, the vampire mythos used to be a metaphor for sex the penetration the exchange of fluids the seduction um the you know temptation into into you know evil or you know you change your life maybe you become a person of the night like it used to have this like narrative meaning now that sexy vampires exist it's like not a metaphor it's just like yeah yeah um he bit her so we get to see the bite and then we also get to see her fu- him fuck her yeah like you yeah. get to see like both of them i imagine bram stoker would be like wait wait hold on hold on uh i couldn't say he fucks her that's why i made up the vampire thing for this book we didn't yeah. make up vampires but you know what i mean yeah I have an alternate tagline not really your job but go for it uh up for some heavy petting <laughs> Um, all right, so great. A uh, a number of seconds recap. Um, no, not quick, ninety. Quick recap. A quick we, recap. We, we rebranded. It's just that uh, we just you know keep the, getting it wrong. Yeah. So you know the story of Dracula. Jonathan Harker goes to visit uh, Castle Dracula. Dracula is like, I'm going to buy some land. Why don't you sign this paperwork and tell Jonathan's me more? Like, tell me more. Jonathan's like, Yeah, very far. 
here's all the pa- here's the the paperwork. We'll sign the paperwork, and then Dracula's like, now that I have the paperwork, I can feed you to my my uh, my harem of women, or you know, in other versions, it's just I'll lock you up here. Um, and then uh, you know, Jonathan basically gets goes crazy inside Castle Dracula, loses his, uh, you know, loses his connection to home. But back home, his fiancée-wife, depending on which version you're watching in this, they're actually married. Um, they're not married yet, though. They're not married yet? Oh, she refers to him as her Because that's, like, the whole thing is that off. she's... Yes, yeah, because yes. she's, she's like, once we get married, he's going to back off. Yes, and the worst scene in the movie is their marriage scene. Um, yeah, I'll get to I, that. <laughs> they just start making out in front of everybody. It's like... It doesn't even for a movie as like opulent as this. It, it doesn't fit. Anyways, uh, Dracula uh, sees uh, Mina's image in Mina Mina, or soon to be Mina Harker. Mina's image in um, uh, you, you know uh, Jonathan's belongings. Locket. A locket. Uh, you know, in this, I think it's just like a picture frame. Like it's uh, whatever. Um, so he's like falls in love with her. Cell it reminds him picture. of a lost, uh, a lost love from his youth back in whatever the 1500s when uh, he was a, a royal count um, of of more repute than he is today. And he goes to London with the simultaneous goal of setting up a bunch of. Um, you know, buying a bunch of properties and, you know, sort of reestablishing himself in the world. And primarily the, the, the goal switches to him seducing Mina. See, that part about the buying the shit, that it feels like that doesn't come up once in this movie. So we need to – there's a map and he's like, oh, so you're buying like 10 houses. That's a lot. Well, well, we need to yeah, talk. Yeah, but that's earlier on when Hark – because Keanu Reeves is like, what are you doing? But it feels like once he gets to the city, it is just like – Straight Nina. Straight Nina. Well, um, and Lucy. Yeah. Straight Nina with, with a little uh, Lucy curve in the middle. Yeah, yeah. So he goes to London. He is, uh, you know, a handsomer man. He has command of these animals. Also, he himself is associated with animals. He takes on various animal forms. So he's pursuing Mina, being quite successful at it. Mina is, is falling in love with him. At the same time, he's also uh, bitten Lucy, Mina's best friend. And because of that, that that infection in her raises uh, the awareness of uh, Van Helsing, which is a um, a Van Helsing type, (laughs) a guy who wants to murder a lot of vampires. With that, Van Helsing basically enlightens everybody to what vampires are. He says, you know, vampires, teeth, bad, stake them. Uh, and then uh, <laughs> they all kind of coalesce because Jonathan uh, escapes from Castle Dracula, makes a precarious journey back to London. They're all kind of reunited, the humans in this battle against Dracula. Mina is pitted between the humans hunting Dracula and Dracula himself. And the journey goes back to Castle Dracula. Um, and they hunt down Dracula to his, his his home and eventually kill him. But Mina dies with him in his arms and says basically like proclaims her love for him uh, in their final moments. And like, check out this picture. <laughs> She's like, uh, yeah, um, my marriage is a sham. Like uh, some marriages are like kind of a sham. Her marriage is really a sham at this point. Um, and then it's the like a ends. sham. It's like a sham. Wow. Cause you're like, Wow, that is quite a sham. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, 
this marriage is broken. Oh my god. <laughs> the sham. Wow. Not um, even sham. Wow can clean off the mud off this marriage. A what? Uh, yeah, this uh, this movie ends on the Star Trek planet with the same lighting uh, in a big anticlimax. Uh, we'll talk about my – actually, I really – the one thing I don't like about this movie is I feel like the ending really is – it feels very uh, setty, Like it's very much on a set. I know most of the movies on a set, but it just feels really cheap. And I feel like it happens way too quickly, uh, especially after the kind of the decadence and the operatic nature of the rest of the movie. Uh, before we share our personal, yeah. Before I we share our personal feelings about this movie, I think we'd all seen it before, but this is kind of a long rewatch for all of us. I do want to talk a little bit about Coppola making this movie because I don't know if you guys read much about how we ended up making this movie or why he wanted to make it, but the stories of him making this movie are fascinating because he sounds like a recovering addict trying not to offend again and i don't mean by drugs i don't mean by some other lascivious behavior he was so worried about going over budget and over schedule that he was like a madman in trying to get everything organized uh beforehand because coppola has a reputation as someone who has uh, goes to excess, does not care about timelines and budget, especially on Apocalypse Now, and he kind of lost a lot of his um, the the confidence of studios in the eighties, and he was given a lot of money to make this kind of classic adaptation of Dracula, and he was so fucking worried. He was like, "I can't do it again. I can't do it. I can't lose everyone's confidence again. I can't do it." That he, like, basically made a full animated film with storyboards. He had all these sets built beforehand. He kept, like, making all of these things to keep him in line so that he could actually not disappoint all of his loved ones once again. Uh, in this case, the loved ones are the are the head of the studio. It, it was so funny to me to think about that because this, you know... Coppola made basically like, what, five of the best movies of all time. And then if you look at his filmography, this is like the other one that I would consider pretty great. Um, This and Rumblefish. But it is just weird that he was like that worried about like taking everyone's confidence and budget and fucking it up again. And then he delivered the most insane movie. Insane. Fucking universe. Like this was this does not feel like somebody playing it safe. Like this is. You mentioned Rumblefish, like that is a movie that is extremely experimental and yeah. has like a different style and a different tone from like almost shot to shot. And that feels like a real like comparison point here. Like he is throwing everything at the wall, like aesthetically and and tonally, and that's why I love it. Like you could easily have done like a much more sort of scaled back and prestige version of this same thing, and, and it feels like he turned this up to eleven most of the time. Oh, no, he want he he always wanted it to be insane. He wanted it to be he used like that's why he had all the costumes. He used only practical effects. He didn't even use compositing except in one shot uh, where the guy falls off the cliff. He wanted every effect to exist on screen on screen. But because he had such a big vision, he was so worried about going to excess that he took all these steps to rein himself in. And so mm, yeah. we did get the crazy vision. 
but it wasn't um, it wasn't a troubled production or it wasn't something that ran over. So we kind of got the best of that kind of crazy unhinged throwing everything at the wall Coppola, but like with a movie that didn't have a bunch of documentaries to make on okay. <laughs> like what a disaster it was. Though I will say uh, the studio when they saw the cuts of this were like, "What the fuck is this?" The dailies no. for this movie have, had to look awful. Yeah. The dailies for this movie had to make no fucking sense. This is definitely a movie made in the editing room because it is so tonally wild. You guys have already already nailed that down. The types of styles that it goes from. It goes from these like very 1940s sort of like hand-drawn backgrounds and more dramatic operatic lighting. And then it has like really like fast cutting like yeah. very 90s almost 90s feeling um edits during certain monster attacks that you're like oh this is this is a movie of you know the modern era and it's a uh, it, it feels like a movie that's a set of decisions and i love it for that because just the decisions right or wrong do not feel compromised it's no. a silent movie every once in a while for a couple of minutes. <laughs> yeah Yes, I, I've said before, because I, I, not to show my hand too much, but I've said before that this is one of the most gorgeous horror movies I've ever seen. Actually, it's just one of the most gorgeous movies, but it's one of the most yeah. gorgeous horror movies. I'm so happy that we have it, but like, sometimes, and we'll get to it, mostly because of Keanu and a little bit of Winona, I wish that it was a silent movie with dialogue cards and the score. The score is incredible. It's this like rousing mix of both like classical sort of like theming universal monsters theming but also it's got really modern touches as well it's this blending of the past and the present in a way that the movie also pitches itself as and all of that comes together in a way that um i feel like the movie weirdly enough if you you could cut it together as a silent movie, you could cut the dialogue out, and and Keanu would look good in the frame, yeah. right? I'm sure no. there's some sort of. No. Uh... <laughs> he would like. I think if he's not talking, he would look like fine, right? And he's Wrong. barely in the movie. No. He, he gets the movie. He gets the movie stolen from him, and then he's, he's barely kind of a in the human movie. MacGuffin, yeah. It's great. It's great because I one of my disappointments in um, watching some Dracula movies, and I love. I think actually the best. What do you guys think is the best Dracula movie, this including one. Nosferatu? I said this one. I mean, the original Nosferatu, of course, is amazing, and and the Herzog is amazing. But I kind of like have trouble considering those proper Dracula adaptations, even though they're very very close. So like this one, I this is this is just such a beautiful vision of. It's a crazy book. Have you guys read the book? Yeah, I have not. The book, the book is the book is is a crazy book. Yeah, and, I, and so it, a lot of the limitations of kind of the storytelling of this, I think, go straight back to the book. Oh yeah, it's a, a different story. Um, I mean, this I think is really wonderful. So my my favorite is the Herzog, like for the Dracula tale. I really that movie gets under my skin in a way that even surprises me. For like a very like kind of bloodless movie, but this this would be my second, and then the Silent Nosferatu would be would be my third. So that's my exact order. That was my point. Is that was my that's my exact order is is the Herzog, and then this, and this and the Herzog are actually weirdly close, um, and then the the Silent movie. But my my point was just that like we we've seen so many versions of this movie, and it is so wonderful to see one that doesn't feel like the previous versions. It feels very, very alive. It does not feel like a 
a rote retread of all the old themes. I think this is the only one, actually, of all of them, that the journey to Castle Dracula is fun. Most of them, you're just like, uh, just get to the fucking castle so we can see Dracula. And this, I'm like, weird. It's really like, quick. It's really, uh, it's really like a uh, beautiful and like Winona Ryder is in some like really uh, delicious settings. Like she's in that, that nursery where she's typing at that desk and she's reading Arabian Nights. And like, and then Lucy comes in. Like the movie finds a way to breathe life into Mina in a way that no previous Dracula adaptation has or has since, I think. So, uh, what do you got? What's your guys' history with the movie? I saw it when I was in junior high, and I thought it was dumb but very pretty. And then every time that I've returned to it, expecting it to be worse, I've liked it more. I haven't, yeah, I haven't seen it since uh, high school, where I watched it because it was on the, um, I bought a book that was the New York Times, like, thousand best movies of all time and included, like, the original reviews. And I would definitely, like, gravitate towards um, anything that was, like, remotely modern in that book because it was like, oh, this will be easier to find at a video store. <laughs> Not because I was – yeah, because at the time it was like, oh, great. No, that movie sounds awesome. How am I going to get that in Bismarck, North Dakota uh, right now in 1998? I tend to gravitate towards those movies because I actually had a chance to watch them. And this the, re- the review in this movie was very much about how uh, the costumes were amazing and, and it was – you know, gorgeous to look at, and there wasn't much going on on screen. Uh, I watched it. I remember really liking it. I don't think I appreciated uh, the scope of it because I was watching it on a VHS, uh, panned and scanned and and cropped and on a probably a shitty 19-inch um, TV in my parents' basement or something like that. So uh, I liked the story. It may have been even my first, like, cinematic uh, version of Dracula I saw. But I, I, the sense of, like, this movie's so big and operatic did not come across from the version I watched. So, and I haven't seen it since then. Watching it a couple nights ago, uh, you know, on a bigger TV, on a on an, you know, Blu-ray equivalent print, uh, was kind of mind-blowing at how much I had missed uh, of how, like, over-the-top and nuts this movie is. Um, I liked it then. I love it now. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's... <laughs> It's also one of those movies that I know exactly why somebody would dislike it. Like, I, I, I am a human being with a working functional brain most of the time. Uh, I can see the flaws, yet it has such a propulsive energy and it's so alluring in its, like, cinematic cohesion. That it just moves, right? That I don't care like the only stuff that bugs me are we'll get into it but like it's like Keanu a full a few weird moments that last a little too long but like that's kind of it like there's not there's nothing in the movie in terms of the way that it's presented to me that I'm like okay that's not right or there's nothing about the characters that rings wrong to me that like would really distract me it's weird, like, we the, the term, it's so bad, it's good, is very common. I feel like this is a movie that's almost, it's so good, you don't care, it's kind of bad. <laughs> that's that's true. There's a, there's a magic to it that overlaps all of its issues. So, um, so what did you, so this movie begins with Anthony Hopkins narrating it, uh, very much like the uh, Ron Howard movie, The Grinch. Uh, which movie is scarier <laughs> to you? 
Um, both of the sets are pretty amazing, I think. Both, I think them, both of them are this, this marvel of set of practical set design, right? Like, one what? is just entirely misguided aesthetically. <laughs> I, I think it would be worthwhile because there are so many named actors in here. As long as you brought up Anthony Hopkins, let's fucking jump into some of the performances in this movie because Anthony Hopkins is fucking nuts in this movie. Like, the performance that he is giving is... Insane. I mean, the. I mean, this is right after Signs of the Lambs. How seemingly unhinged his performance is, and I don't mean that necessarily in like uh, everything he's doing is like commanding and purposeful. It does feel to me like he just tried a new thing every day, and sometimes in the middle of sentences, because his accent is has no consistency, his tone has no consistency, and somehow because Anthony Hopkins is a good actor and this movie and everything around him is also insane it it works very well he's a um he's an icon uh performance in this movie where you're like you know you ever watch a movie and you're like you see one actor and you're like he is clicked into what the movie is yes like he feels like to me what he clicked into what the movie is he has this line where he says um i just want to cut off her head and take out her heart and it is (laughs) It is so funny, and he almost repeats it a couple times because he's like, what? Like, he's, like, clearly gone mad. He's not doing the Blade thing where he's like, he's like, I've seen some shit, and we need to take this seriously. He's like, yeah, I've seen awful, awful stuff, monsters, yeah, all that shit. Anyway, so we're going to take care of this, like, right now? You want to just take care of this? He's the center of this movie in terms of performances. That you- well, it's it's crazy because he's not even in really the first half. He's in the the prologue. He does that little narration, and then he's in a long fake beard, and then he's gone for most of it. And then it's like Silence of the Lambs. Like he's yeah. not in that much of Silence of the Lambs, but you remember so much of him. And then he appears. He he comes up in an operating theater about halfway through, and you're like, oh right, this is an Anthony Hopkins movie, and he's been here the whole time, right? <laughs> it just feels so yeah natural. yeah i should say in terms of my history i actually hadn't seen this before so this is this oh is all fresh for me oh, um, perfect perfect aaron we're doing the lord's work we're converting people to our weird fucked up cult this movie loomed really large in my consciousness as a kid because i think it came out when i was about six and i i hadn't seen it but i was already like really aware of movie marketing and stuff so some of these images are like burned into my brain for the past 25 years. Then I tried to watch it in like college and like, we should just go ahead and talk about Keanu to get it out of the way. Yeah. Because he's, he is, the beginning is so Keanu heavy that I was like, oh, well, I guess apparently this movie's terrible and I just won't watch it. And then you guys brought it up as, as a potential episode. And I was like, it's probably a fun train wreck. And then I, I looked at Rotten Tomatoes and I was like, oh, wait, is, is this a good movie? And I just didn't know. And and that's where I landed. Um, so everything that I'm coming to is 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 coming to me completely fresh. Could we just could we just get the Keanu conversation? Out of the yeah, way? let's get let's get let's the, do it. Let's, let's do, do it. the Keanu. So Keanu, uh, not good in this movie. Uh, he's bad. Um, he's not great. His acting is not is horrible. So I, um, I have a couple of analogies actually that I wrote down in my notes, which is. Like, Keanu Reeves is not a bad actor. He's been great. No. A lot of stuff. And so what I wrote in my notes is, uh, like, you you need to to cast him correctly. And so I said, if you bring rollerblades to a hockey rink, it's your fault, not the rollerblades. 
<laughs> that's perfect. Yeah. That's perfect. I actually feel like Keanu has a very bad reputation as a bad actor. I don't think that's true. I bet a lot think, of it just comes from this, because this popped up at, like, exactly the wrong time in his career. Here's my theory as to why that is, is that you're right. He needs to be in a in a movie that suits him, and he is usually phenomenal. If he's not, it does seem out of place. His kind of jokey uh, actor uh, reputation that he's just not that good of an actor, I think, comes definitely from here, but also because... When you isolate certain dialogue of Keanu Reeves outside of the movie, it sounds goofy. And I'll, I'll never forget when I this kind of crystallized to me, my Keanu Reeves theory. When I saw the trailers for um, the original John Wick, it has that line in the trailer like, people keep saying, I might, you know, I'm back. Well, maybe I'm back. And that is not the line. I thought I had it, but it's close to that. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? I do. Oh, Yeah. I'm thinking I'm back, right? I'm thinking I'm back. That's what it is. Yeah, I'm thinking I'm back. And I remember seeing this on a trailer in the movie. It's called John Wick. I'm like, what the fuck is this? This looks terrible. And like that line looked so stupid. That was like the cementing it into me that this is going to be a bad movie. And when you watch the movie, not only is that line not stupid, it is like the part of the movie that you want to stand up and start clapping but I feel like taken outside of the context of the movie, it seems really goofy. It's the same thing with the I know Kung Fu stuff in The Matrix and a yes. lot of other stuff that's been isolated from Keanu. If you take it out of the movie because he has a very – he has a very interesting way of line of, – of reading his lines. He has a very idiosyncratic kind of tone. It does seem goofy out of context. But when it's in context, it works perfectly and this is like the one movie maybe not the one movie but one of the prime examples where there was no in context for it to work but even if you look at one of my favorite movies is my own private idaho where he is similarly playing this very sort of mannered and and that's a weird movie that that asks a lot of dramatic and and very stilted stuff from him it works there and what really struck me here is to jump to another performance is carrie elwes However you pronounce yeah. that. He's in there. And I just couldn't help thinking every time he was on screen is like, if he was Jonathan, this would all work so much better. Because Keanu's just not pitched to that kind of like slightly elevated, melodramatic, you know, 40s swashbuckling thing that, that Carrie Elwes is so good at. But then, of course, Keanu is in probably less of the movie than Carrie Elwes is. So it's probably best that he's where he is. Yeah. Keep Keanu in the fuck pit. Just oh, keep yeah, them. Yes, Every house yeah. needs a fuck pit. Keanu belongs in the fuck pit. But yeah, so Carrie Ellis is is would be a better Harker also because Harker's role in this, in this movie, not in other Dracula adaptations as much, definitely not in the Herzog one. Uh, Harker's role in this is basically to come in, be a dummy for the audience to see what Dracula's intentions are see Mina kind of get tempted or pulled over to the side of evil. Like, he's not really, like, a, a fully-fledged character, which I think helps the movie a lot. So having someone like Carrie Ellis who could be, like, uh, mannered and really, like, proper and, like, give this performance of, like, this is what society has told me. I'm supposed to marry this woman. I'm supposed to go off into the great beyond and investigate this castle Dracula and, you know, b b sell these properties to this guy to make my career. Like, Carrie Ellis would have made a lot more sense for that. The only scene in the movie it makes sense to have Keanu in is the sex scene with the vampire brides because Whoa. because 
people <laughs> thought Ke- well people think Keanu is hot, right? People know Keanu is hot. But it's just it's just not the right kind of hotness for this for this project. But then it's <laughs> to jump again. It's funny Pete that you 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 even in your uh 90 plus second recap focused a lot on the Harker and Nina at all when for much of this movie it's about three wacky best friends Uh, (laughs) a a doctor a socialite and a cowboy (laughs) yes fighting Dracula and that's that's what I really love and I've read the book and that's very true to the book like most of it is Harker is is off screen or off you know, out out in Dracula's castle. And it's about these three guys who you don't remember their names, but they have this wonderful chemistry and this wonderful plot. And it's, it's Carrie Elwes, a guy who is not Timothy Oliphant, but might as well be. And then he looks so Ol- Oliphant or er, uh, er, Oliphant. I did think it was weird that when he, when he dies, the theme song to justified started playing. <laughs> no, that was weird. And then what's Richard something, who is this amazing actor that you see everywhere. He's Withnell from Withnell and I, and I'm always blanking on his name. Richard E. Grant. Richard E. Grant. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it's interesting, though, that, that this is such a, a central part of the story, and it's always so glossed over. And this is what the movie really brought back to me, is, is sort of how warped our perception of what this story is, in a lot of ways. And that, again, gets back to the structure, and, and I guess maybe we should keep running down the performances first, because the other one we should highlight is, is Winona Ryder, who I think is in a similar sort of vein to Keanu, where, like, she's a little too current and a little too 90s, but I think acquits herself a little bit better from my perception. And and really, Mina, I think, is is the protagonist of this version. 100%, which is not true of any other version, I don't think. Maybe maybe the Herzog movie, but yeah. Well, this movie really leans into the concept of, I think the, the tagline or one of the taglines is like, love is eternal. Like, love this never movie, dies on the poster. love never dies. Yes. This movie, re- and a lot of the marketing material had like, you know, Winona Ryder, like, wrapping herself around either uh, Dracula as Gary Oldman or Dracula as a wolf or something else. Like, one of his many transformations, which I'm sure we'll talk about because those are awesome. Um, but it really is selling this idea of, like, this eternal love. And I don't know how much it works as a as a love story or even if that's what they were really going for besides a marketing purpose. But this really is the version where, like, Nina has a lot of agency and is, like, part of Dracula's past and does decide that she loves him at some point in the movie so and pretty early on so harker you're right the part of the reason he's such a non-entity is in most versions harker is the person who not just saves nina but um but ends up with nina at the end not a that nina actually thinks of harker as a um as just a generic dude when her when her true love is the uh, the antagonist of the film. So let's let's really quickly talk about the ending, and then we'll loop back to the rest of the movie um, while we're while we're here because this is Love and Monsters Month. Um, it is about Winona Ryder, like we said, is the Fuck protagonist of the movie. She is in love with the monster, um, but the movie has a lot of sympathy for Gary Oldman as Dracula, which we have not gotten to yet. Uh, she says something to Jonathan. She says, "When my time when my time comes, will you come? Will you do the same to me?" And they're talking about killing Dracula. And she's basically at that point admitting that she's like, I'm closer to him than you. You're tearing me between these two worlds. And 
I choose Dracula's world for now, at least to say goodbye to him. Yeah. Right? That basically turns Jonathan to realizing, which actually, this is... This is, you know, something that they could have used from Keanu because he's really good at playing like a beaten down guy, a sad puppy dog. He says, our work here is finished. Uh, Hers has just begun. It's him basically relinquishing the movie to Dracula and to to Mina. That is that's like a really wonderful moment because that is the movie admitting that it's not about Jonathan getting his wife back and that the movie was never about Jonathan getting back to his wife, fiance wife. It was actually about, like, her denying her urges to try to live, like, a level of normalcy. And the movie does keep it very vague of, like, what Nina's awareness is of past lives. Because there is a point in the movie where she just, like, is like, I can't fight anymore. Yeah, I love you. I know exactly who you are. Uh, I do want to be with you. And then it never really goes back from that. But you don't necessarily get a sense of... Did she know this the whole time and was fighting it? Is this something that awoken in her when she saw Dracula again? Like, that sense of awareness prior to meeting Dracula is is, is left uh, purposely muddled, and it's fine. Uh, it, works, it works well in the movie. But it is it, it does sort of make it hard to understand whether her motivation was, I thought I did love John Harker at some point uh, until I remembered what true love is like. Or whether, uh, or whether she was just trying to live her normal life and forget about the true love that she had. So we keep using the word love, and we, we're talking about love, and... And, let's be clear, and monsters. And monsters. <laughs> love in this is, is a very sort of muddy issue when it comes to, between Dracula and Mina, because it is, this movie is so eroticized. And I was, I was looking back just before we started talking at, at a couple of scenes, and there's the the scene uh, with with Dracula, Gary Oldman, in, in his old age makeup towards the beginning, where he he interrupts the brides uh, <laughs> having an orgy with with Jonathan, and they say to him, the brides say, "You've never really loved," and he says, "I have loved, and I'll love again." And he gives the classic like Kubrick look, where he's looking from under these heavy brows with this evil grin, and you get the sense of like, what is love? To this person and then baby when, don't hurt me yes exactly very literally and then with with mina this this is an extremely horny movie as i said and you guys just talked about shape of water also a super horny movie oh, oh both super horny online so what does love mean between mina and dracula you're not seeing them sort of connecting on an emotional level you're seeing them like jam their faces and bodies against each other and go like my love my love Open That's how I understand love. <laughs> it is. It is like weirdly leading up to the um, not even Twilight. Twilight wasn't this uh, more True Blood. It is leading up to the um, sex positive vampire stories that would basically like overrule the mid two thousands um, because it is sort of legitimizing lust as part of love and maybe the driving force of love. And what's fun is like when they first meet on the street, he's like he comes to talk to her and he's like almost harassing her in a way. Uh, he's wearing uh, weird shaded glasses and he's got long dreads. Well, those well, are that's, called sunglasses. That's you, you can get those anywhere. So let's ask the question. Do you find Dracula sexy in this? No. I, do, I don't, but I, I'm, like, seeing a possibility that, like, someone might. He looks way too much like 
a mid-tier boss in every video game uh, that wanted to go for a steampunk vibe. <laughs> like, yeah. especially with those glasses. Like, he just... Every look he strikes is um, very imposing and very... I, I want to kind of save that discussion because I really love how he just... He just changes up his entire look uh, from how he looks as a human to how he looks as, like, a beast. Yeah. Almost, like, from scene to scene. It is maybe my favorite part of this movie. But, um... So, Ethan, are you horny for Dracula? <laughs> Always in any iteration. But I, I do find the, the sort of sunglasses, top hat, street-level look... I, I engage with that less than I would like to. And that's, <laughs> maybe that's just sort of a design question. Like I love that look. I just think it looks... I love it because it's so goofy. It is very goofy. It it just it takes me out of it a little bit for some reason, and I I wish I was more into it because I'm into every other look. Like the the old man in the castle, Dracula is perfect. I love the yeah. like, weird gold robes at the end, and that one just doesn't land for me for some reason. I do think though when he's like having sex with Winona Ryder or Nina, what takes me away from the sexiness of him. Is I think his hair looks his long, long lion's mane looks really stupid on Gary Hiltman. I I think that is my problem. Like he, I think if he would just had his like normal like '90s Gary Oldman like professional type haircut, I bet you that would be a really sexy scene. And there's something about this obvious wig with these like wavy curls that go down to his legs that that make it. I think it takes away from the the potential sexiness by making it seem like, why is this guy trying to look like Fabio on the cover of a cheap romance novel? Like, it doesn't work with his face. Yeah, so I I, I do think really quickly, I think Winona Ryder was well cast. Um, I think that her accent is a little off, but I think... I did too. I think emotionally, she, she rings true for me. And also, she was our goth princess, right? She was in Heathers and Beetlejuice, and she was sort of like a darker, more alternative, like, um, you know, big star actress where she was like, as much as you can, like we saw her as like away from the like super blonde, super, you know, pearly white teeth and tall kind of um, actresses of the mid 90s. We saw her more as like a relatable actress. Yeah, and she always acquitted herself well in, like, period pieces. Like, I know this is her first foray into that, if you look at her film- filmography. But, you know, she did very well later on in stuff like uh, The Crucible and uh, uh, Age of Innocence, Martin Scorsese. She's really good in that. Yes. Um, she and Little Women. Uh, I don't know if you guys have ever seen that, the uh, 1994 that's, that's uh, movie. such a good movie. It's a great movie, and she's really, really good as Joe in that movie. So, I mean, she was – she quits herself well in period pieces, which I think is not the case with Keanu. And yeah. this was the yeah. w- w- this was the first version of that. But I agree sometimes the accent's a little little off base. But I think I think she's really good in this movie. Emotionally, she rings true for me. And the reason I mentioned yeah. that now is because I think during the sex scenes and during the romance, I really buy her sort of like, no, this is who I'm supposed to be. And then gradually – relinquishing it into her real personality and it really is great because it's commenting on the era it's commenting on the stiff victorian bullshit where you're like supposed to act like this like prim and proper lady even though like you basically your life is decided by men like it's a it's a horrible thing and then she finally gets and i'm not saying this is like a feminist tome or anything the the original book is 100 percent not a feminist tome um and i don't think any of the movies could be called that um except for 
this is the closest maybe um is that she uh gets to be like okay i'm not only breaking from what my assigned marriage is at the beginning of the movie it's a foregone conclusion they're getting married right yeah well she seems into it too like she doesn't seem that's why my question of where she kind of awakens her love whether it was something she knew about and buried or whether it was um something she honestly didn't know about because it is very like she seems into it she does not seem like she's just going through the through the motions. But on a on a spirit on a literal level, yes, there are questions of like how much does she know, how much is she allowed to know through her bond with this spiritual bond. But in a spiritual, more like a metaphorical sense, she is her pining for something that she doesn't know and is kind of far off and distant and is like more elusive is like a really potent metaphor for Somebody being forced into a marriage at a young age and having to take on these roles that don't necessarily agree with her. And all of a sudden, this wild card comes in, this sexy international man who has a, you know, a, a tawdry romance with her. And then she comes back or her, her, you know, her husband comes back from a foreign trip. The relationship is completely transformed. And so I, I don't know if I buy Gary Oldman as a sexy man, but I totally buy the way the movie is structured, where you're like, she was sucked in by it. When they share scenes together, I buy it. I really love the scenes ap- after they get married, where Keanu Reeves is just panicked and awkward and gray-haired, and she, and, yeah. and, and, and and she's just like, um, she's just like lost a little bit. She's like not quite connected. Look, if you spend that much time in the fuck pit. It takes it out of you. Yeah. He has PTSD and she just wants the D. Yep. All the all the cum he was shooting out eventually <laughs> ran out of cum juice and they had to start taking the color out of his hair. I know how biology works. <laughs> so I've been sitting here wanting to push back against the idea that she is well cast because I still have trouble escaping the idea that this is like sort of a mannered movie and it's a a throwback to old melodramas and so i was thinking like you know does it work better if it's somebody like like very young elizabeth taylor who who can do that sort of mannered melodrama again um then as you guys were talking i i see the way that that coppola is sort of bringing in these very 90s themes of of you know pushing back against previous conceptions of of uh sexual dynamics and recontextualizing some of this old stuff and and this is where i feel like this is a movie that just wants to be and do everything like it is extremely extremely faithful to the novel in most ways but then it really sort of picks and chooses elements from other tellings to bring in in ways that are are maybe not always quote unquote successful in in ways that it leads to some sort of weird shape and and lumpiness to the movie but like the whole structure the whole ending where they're on this adventure through eastern europe as they are are trying to beat dracula back to transylvania and, and mina is kind of serving as this bait almost comes straight from the novel but then the idea that she is his lost love comes from some other adaptation and i i don't know which one off the top of my head is it i don't think it's the browning version no not so much the browning version also she's kind of a 
She's yeah. like a more amorphous woman where they didn't know what to do with her, but they needed a woman in the movie. It's 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 yeah. really not. It doesn't work. I saw that once a long time ago. My point is that I think Winona Ryder is the best for what Coppola was trying to do here, but this is really clarifying for me the idea that what he was trying to do is is so messy and unwieldy that it's hard to really judge on any terms except its own almost that's true i don't know so i was i was wanting to talk a little bit about the structure of the thing where so you you said you've you've read the book right pete yes yes it has a long segment that involves tracking a package that is like both fun but lasts so long like the book could have been cut by 100 pages but it's also a book that just has this conceit that it's being told in letters and diary entries and all of this. And that means that it's it's kind of hard to always follow exactly what's going on. And it derives, I think, terror from that, the idea that, like, you know, we're, we're jumping from Harker in the castle to all of a sudden the, the captain's log on the ship. And you can never quite tell where Dracula is because you're always kind of trying to, to triangulate his location from the other characters accounting of it. And that's kind of hard to put up on screen then where what you're seeing is, is basically being objectively rendered. It's interesting that, that Coppola is trying to grapple with that more than I think any other uh, filmmaker has, you know, he's not trying to, to sort of recreate the story to fit the narrative form or the, of, of the film. He's trying to make that novel work mashed up against a screen and so that's where I think the ending can get kind of weird and and misshapen and feel abrupt, whereas in the novel it maybe works a little better. And also the fact that then he's trying to bring this idea of, of the Dracula-Mina relationship and honor that even while keeping the climax of the novel. I think that um, the climax of the novel uh, mostly works in the movie, barring a few things. One... Going to Transylvania, going back, going to Transylvania thing is kind of frustrating, I think, as a as an audience, because the movie, especially if you're enjoying the movie, you're like, wait, we have to go back there. Um, <laughs> I think he calling it Bram Stoker's Dracula and deciding he's going to be mostly faithful to the book is a noble task. And you're right. There's like a lot of gnashing to get there. But he's doing I think he's he's making a noble effort. Well, what's what's funny is did you did you see that he only called it Bram Stoker's Dracula because of a copyright issue, and that I think the other potential title was just the letter D or something. Ugh, I didn't Which see is, that. That's it, not good. It suggests that he wasn't necessarily trying to do the ultra faithful version, which is then what what it gets pitched as once you attach Bram Stoker's name to it and almost taking away the notion that it's trying to be the most faithful version, just calling it D, which is a, an insane title, but would at least yeah. suggest that like we're doing something wild and crazy and we're just throwing everything at the wall, which is what he is doing. Did he have to go to back? Uh, basically, but my point is, did he have to go to back to tra- Transylvania? Couldn't it have been Dracula bought a really sick ass castle in, in England and they figured out a way to make that more resonant with the rest of the movie? Like, they- so that's where you, you get into the dirt thing. <laughs> yes, yes, the dirt thing is- does not. It, it doesn't on. play as well on screen as it does in the book, which I think the idea is Dracula needs Transylvanian dirt wherever he's going to be. Yeah. And so it's they, part of his curse. They, yeah. And they screw up his dirt in England. So he has to run back to Transylvania for more dirt. Isn't that the idea here? 
Yes, and, and otherwise, without that, I think they're not as clear about that in the scene where they invade his home. Definitely not. And they smash up his shit, and then he turns into green gas, and then he murders Renfield. That scene is that scene is very kind of muddled. I think they needed to really nail down what was getting accomplished in that scene, because I think to a viewer, you're watching that scene, and you just say, oh, they didn't get Dracula. See, I disagree that you need any explanation for any of this stuff in this movie because I feel like the broad strokes are painted well enough that the imagery carries any potential plot loss. So I've never read the book. I think I started it at one point in junior high and the um, the writing was a little bit too – not something I was used to. And it's I a got, very I demanding just, book. I couldn't, I couldn't follow it in seventh or eighth grade. It's not as fun as Frankenstein or some yeah. of the other Yeah, I read Frankenstein. Classics. Yeah, I – I just I probably was a little bit too young or too uh not as used to that sort of Victorian style of of writing. No, I didn't get through it until I was something like twenty eight. Like I tried it when I was a kid and then picked it back up as an adult Because <laughs> you wanna like like I wasn't allowed to watch horror movies, but I was allowed to read books. Basically any books I wanted, so it was like, oh finally I'm gonna get to see these Dracula and Frankenstein stuff, but it just didn't work for me. But anyways, so I, you know, I don't know the intricacies of that, and this movie really focuses on those three, the three guys. Which it was interesting to hear you say that that's a big part of the book because obviously that basically to me is like something in this movie and not in most uh, Dracula movies I've seen. It it really is not a focus in a lot of them. But regardless, I I feel like all that stuff with like the green gas or like the dirt stuff, it it all works because, and I think this is a good transition to talk about like. What they decide to do with Dracula, which may be close to the book, it may not, but it's almost like every scene that he is in, not only does he have a different look, and that look can be old man from the beginning, it can mean like, uh, you know, pimp out for a walk with his glasses, it could be like, uh, you know, romance book cover as a human, or it could be crazy werewolf creature or my favorite Crazy design, the like, creature. the yeah, the bat design is great, or the fog, or he splits into a bunch of rats. That is one of my favorite parts of the of the movie, and that is also coupled with not just the fact that almost every scene he is portraying a different version of himself. On top of that, every scene that he's in, everything else around him gets chaotic. I love the shadow work in this movie. It's very German expressionist and it's very, it's very like uh, imposing and, and sh- yeah. But he, it's, it, it's the shadow stuff. There's other things that are going on that affect the environment. If he's just in a scene and I love this concept of Dracula being so powerful that there's really not a, there's really not a him to him anymore. He is essentially whatever he needs to be in that moment, but it's not just him that like changes from his like heartbreak or what's what's hollowed him out at the core but he like affects the environment around him which is also a very lovecraftian concept this idea of like this evil that kind of shapes stuff to his um not to his will but just to his presence there the excess in this movie really really plays well when even a simple you know a a simple two-hand or simple dual talking scene there's like other crazy things going around that dracula doesn't seem aware of he doesn't seem in control of he is just like a gravity center of a black hole that fucks up the gravitation of all uh pole and constants of everything around him that's a great point 
Well, there's um, something to the idea, I think, that he's been around for so many centuries. Like, something that I think is so interesting about Alan Moore's Watchmen is the idea of what being alive or being almost outside time does to Dr. Manhattan and, and his perceptions of others and his perceptions of the world. And there's there's a sense of that here, I think, where he's he yeah. is, you know, orders of magnitude older than anybody else. He's perceiving sort of the world in time differently. And he becomes almost this sort of id where where he just is so singularly focused on his weird, nasty needs that he doesn't operate on the same frequency or wavelength as as any other character. And doesn't need to. <laughs> you you do me- you do mention briefly that Dracula is associated with all manner of beasthood. In this movie, he's associated with rats, bats, wolves, fog, fog. It's a very kitchen sink horror movie. I feel like him taking multiple beast forms. He he takes a furry form. He takes the form of an actual wolf, and he takes the form of a bat version of himself. And he's like also like the the hideous version and the the count. The Count Orlock almost version, and then also he becomes a sexy guy. Like, it is a kitchen sink horror movie where they are throwing everything in there. It's a movie in a nutshell, I think, is the number of forms he takes. Like, Dracula's at the center of the movie. The Dracula tells you about everything everything you need to know about the movie. And well, and there's, it's not just a bunch of different forms. He's, like, then, like, superimposed over frames and disappearing at will and causing people to react to him. I mean, it is such a great... I, I, I'm going to say it's not my favorite Dracula movie. I guess it's my second favorite. It's close. It's definitely my favorite depiction of a vampire. Yeah, it's it's really wonderful. So could we talk about the ending a little bit? I yeah. I feel like we're, we're sort of circling around a lot of things, but that's that's something that is sort of a, a thorn for me because I was, I was saying earlier that like part of the weird structure of the, the movie is that it's trying to keep within the structure of the book, which it largely does, but then it also jams in this idea of the Mina as the lost love of Dracula, which is not in the book. And so the the book pretty much ends with that climax, which I know, Aaron, you don't love the the design of the climax here. I think it's kind of neat. But then they they end up in the, the cathedral, and that's where things go really weird for me. I like a lot of it. I like the idea that she is sort of setting him free and setting them all free. I think it's insane that he whispers Jesus Christ's last words. <laughs> and then it, and then it oh, just yeah. ends. And the ending feels really weirdly abrupt to me. So something just doesn't sit quite right with me about that final sequence. So I'm on the same page. It's just I don't have a problem with the ending conceptually. Like they go to kill Dracula. And I'm assuming in the book, obviously, Nina wasn't on on his side. But either either version of that Nina on the side, Nina on the side, whatever, they go to back to his castle and they try to kill him. It's just the whole movie is so big and opulent and it feels like, you know, the, everyone makes jokes about like locations or, you know, something like that being part of the movie. Like it feels like the movie and the fact that this is a movie is a character in this movie because it is just so giant and big throughout the entire thing and there's all these things going and there's just these – Moments of like slow motion and blood splattering and every set is designed in the most like we want to put this in a movie way and it's so great. And then at the end, it's so quiet, but not like quiet in a we're changing tone way. Like the ending to me feels and I know this isn't true. It feels like they ran out of money and they're like, I don't know, shoot at the shitty set and then 
kind of wave stuff at him for a second and and then that's going to be it. It just feels anticlimactic and it feels small in a way that the rest of the movie doesn't. So I agree with you, Ethan. It feels very abrupt and it, it is abrupt, but it also feels like it's not matching the opulence and extravagance that the rest of the movie is hitting. So and I don't I think that's done on purpose. Would you prefer if it was sort of like a sweeping, say, Lord of the Rings-esque, like, weathertop kind of scene where you're you're clearly in a real location? Yeah, or even not – he doesn't – I don't care about the sets because this movie is basically all sets. It's how he tried to save a bunch of money to, to make sure he hit under the budget. It's just that this set looks like a, like, 60s Star Trek set to me. And, like, the yeah. lighting in the back of, like, the toilet looks like the same way. It looks like a cheap – all of a sudden it looks like a cheap set. Everything gets quieter. It, it doesn't have the extravagance. Like, I would have loved to see Oldman, like, parading around like he does in the rest of the movie, almost doing, like, a bad Shakespearean, like, I'm dying. Like, it just – all of a sudden it felt muted in a way that felt like not we're going for a tone change, but a we ran out of money. I know that's not the case, that but that's the – best way for me to kind of elucidate what I feel like at the end of this movie. I completely disagree. You disagree? I disagree that it feels... I I like that the movie uh, has one final... In terms of structure, I like that there's one final action scene. I don't think it's set up well. Like I said, the gypsies come out of nowhere. That's a really fucked up thing. I just mean in terms of structure... That I like that there's one final action scene and then the movie narrows down to just those two in a small chapel. I think the set design looks great throughout the ending. And and, and I think like his transformation back to through his old forms is kind of like doesn't look great. It's a little too um, it's a little too false for me. But like I I'm generally on board with the idea of this movie ending with those two sharing a final moment together. And the reason it feels small is because this was supposed to be a romance for the ages that got cut short. And that is, that is, that is, that's it. That's, that's why it's so small is because this is, this is a romance for the ages and now it's done. Like that's. So I'm fine with everything stumbling into the cathedral and him dying in her arms and the movie ending. It's, it's the final confrontation and the build up to that that is my big sticking point. That doesn't bother me. What what's so weird to me is that then they move into the cathedral and then that it ends with the two of them there. Maybe I just never bought into the idea of this as a love for the ages kind of thing cuz again that's not in the novel. It's kind of shoehorned in. It def it definitely was positioned that way. Well, I see I don't buy right. the love for the ages stuff, but I do like the idea instead of uh, making this Nina, this character that gets tormented, is making Nina an equal on on some footing that he's trying to get back to, and then Nina ultimately being on the same page as Dracula. So I don't think it's like a a love for the ages or something that people were walking out of and going like, um, oh my god, that was hot. Or maybe I'm wrong. I I don't know what people of that age thought in 1992, but I do like the idea of. That Nina being more of a, a character with agency who, instead of just a um, a victim of Dracula's torment, and maybe that's just because it's not even just Nina. Like, I've seen, and I'm sure we've all seen, a billion universal horror movies or universal horror ripoffs, and a lot of them are very good, but they all, almost all of them at the center of them have some, some woman being tormented and pursued 
in a very aggressive way by some monster that wants to do uh, unspeakable things to her. And I think, you know, one thing that this movie kind of changes in that and some and the movie we're going to talk about next week, King Kong, changes the same way. Like, what if we make this person more of a participant in that relationship as, a, as opposed to just being like kidnapped or assaulted or anything of that nature. And so I, I really like that change. There's nothing wrong with the Nosferatu version or the original version, but as a change, it's refreshing. I don't know what writer acquits herself well, in my opinion. And at the end of the day, Jonathan Harker as a boring person that no one wants to spend their life with when there's something more passionate helps works really well. If Keanu Reeves is your Jonathan Harker. So I, I think it really makes the movie work. Um, and so the ending is perfect. I'm realizing how minor my issue is, is really, I feel like if, she, if it just ended with her walking back out of the cathedral and, you know, everybody else seeing her there, just the end, the, the literal like last shot feels so abrupt to me. And that's a yeah. real, real small issue. Uh, I want to discuss the beginning of the movie because I think it sets up why I think that this is a romance movie and why this the romance is so central to the end and why it works for me because of that. Um, in the beginning of the movie, uh, we see this awesome 1500s like uh, battle uh, scene where Gary Oldman is basically Vlad the Impaler. Is that the deal? What's the? He's playing some basically, sort of. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's not historically accurate. Also, it's like um, him defending Christendom. Like Vlad the Impaler was also like kind of a petty dude who tortured people for no reason. Like they're they're kind of playing with history a little bit, but it's played off. The movie has a very like almost artificial aesthetic, a very like play like aesthetic, very theatrical. It's not really supposed to be like literal history. The colors are insane in this movie, and they get you started right off the way, right off the bat with. This orange-red, rich battle scene with uh, Gary Oldman in battle. He leaves a love behind. Somebody sends her, sends Elisabetta a letter saying that um, he's died in battle, which is untrue. It's the bastard Turks have sent it. Yes. <laughs> he, uh, he comes home and finds that she has killed herself. And I think one of the best shots in the movie is her suicide when she jumps from the tower and we get to watch her body fall into the fog. Yeah, um, it, that that scene is so wonderful because your sympathies entirely rely with her and him. He did a noble thing, at least in the context of how the movie has framed this battle, not in terms of historic history. He did a noble thing. He came back from battle. She was tricked into suicide because of something that's, you know, horribly tragic. And the church in Anthony Hopkins basically showing up in the movie and being like, I'm going to have a terrible bedside manner the whole movie, guys. Anthony Hopkins is like this old priest going, oh, yeah, she's up. Damn to hell because she killed herself. So uh, just deal with it. And Gary Oldman refuses, stabs the cross, flowing blood. One of the best scenes in the movie. Yeah. And so in that scene, basically what's happening, I took a million years to get here, but I was just sneaking in a way to talk about how beautiful the beginning of the movie is. He, there is a, uh, a natural order of things, and he finds it horrifically unjust. And we as an audience are also on his side. That's why I love that there's a prequel in this, because we now are on his side. We're saying this is a natural order. Like, yeah, sure. We all know the old Catholic thing or the old Christian thing that if you kill yourself, you go to hell. I think – 
the Catholic Church itself has walked back on this beautifully. Because I think, like, that's a horrible, horrible fucking thing to say. They haven't walked it back as much as you may think. They did get rid of limbo, and they did. That was, that was, that was for babies that died without being baptized. Ugh. God, it's fucking awful. Anyways. Wait, hold on. You mean you mean God got rid of limbo, right? He decided limbo can stop yeah, being a thing. He God, shut it down. God said, no more it's limbo. It's not like guys. they just made it up and then it stopped, right? Oh, man. Yeah. I, one, anyways, um, so there's an unjust natural order that is accepting, you know, her soul is damned to hell or whatever. Her, she is lost to the world. And he is saying, no, I will become this, you know, I will defy death. I will defy the natural order. I will become this. And at the end of the movie, us all coming back around to that in the same room that he broke, you know, his vow of, of to the church is just works for me so much because at the beginning of the movie, they get us on our team that the natural order is bullshit. Yeah, I took, I took a million years to get there. Thank you for being patient. I also think uh, it works well because like another great movie, uh, Nutty Professor to the Clumps, <laughs> it allows all of our actors to play multiple characters in the movie. Oh, yeah. Um, because it's basically it's- like a like a sister movie with Nutty Professor to uh, the Clumps. It is uh, – it's just like The Clumps. It's really a movie about how, um, you know, if you keep it tight, your ancestors might look exactly like you someday yeah. later. <laughs> no, it's a great point though. I really do like the opening. When I say the romance doesn't work for me, it doesn't work for me in the sense that like – it's not like Spring, which we're going to talk about later on or the relationship between That's King Kong – or the or what we talked about last week, Shape of Water. Like I'm not swept up in any way of their their romance or their relationship in the way I am the other three movies. It just it works for me in the sense that like I like it intellectually, but I'm not nothing about it touches my romantic bone. Hey guys, I'm gonna I'm gonna mess this all up for you real bad because I feel you really nicely tying together the episode, tying together your theme, and I I'm just gonna throw a bomb into that. Which is that we we haven't even talked about how great Tom Waits is in this fucking movie. Yeah. He's he's one of the best Renfields, I think. He is one of the best film characters. For those of you yeah. who haven't seen this movie, Tom Waits, the famed singer-songwriter, is playing an insane man who has wandered in from an entire other universe and spends a lot of the movie <laughs> just in some bizarre sort of Tim Burton-esque kind of a hellraiser prison hellraiser prison he's being dangled from the ceiling and he's just eating bugs and screaming about the master and it's it's just perfect and i didn't want us to end the episode without talking about it but it's also nice is like anybody that calls him out for being too insane look in the room that they put him in they put him in yes this like uh, uh like gothic high like the the designer of arkham prison in in uh batman would be like all right guys like take a little bit of a step off the gas like it's it's got uh cage-headed guards who are spraying inmates with hoses he's eating bugs off the floor he all the the doctor is wearing like leather suspenders for some reason i assume it's a safety harness i don't know I fucking love that prison, the design, every time they go back to it. It's so good with the people with the cages on their heads. And it is it is the perfect like microcosm example of how 
well designed everything is in this movie, which is oh, what yeah. that which what that, what that book talked about. I know it's what it gets a lot of its credit for, but when you see how much care they put into not just seeing like the cage where Renfield is, but like the way this like bizarre prison dynamic works and the system they have in place, which is like you kind of get it, but it also feels otherworldly in a way. It's so good, and it's exactly what makes everything else uh, so good in a way that's a little more ineffable because instead of seeing like this well-designed prison where you can point out to all the different points where it's, well, that's creepy and that's weird and that's out of place, I think they do that the rest of the movie in a much less obvious way that still gets under your skin. Yeah, I think the prison is uh, a a great way to talk about the uh, talk about this movie as a whole because the prison is a a design cue for what the movie is doing. This is you could total- you could say that he was way down in the hole. <laughs> the movie is, is 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 totally committed to its vision. It flows from scene to scene, and it's this nightmare world where asylums look like this and the real world has purple red skies and tom waits and the asylum are a great way to talk about this movie Uh, there's so much to talk about this movie let's do some quick scenes and then we'll do some some final thoughts i feel like we can Um, talk about this movie for like another six hours that's the problem it's 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 narratively dense it's thematically dense and it has an entire history behind it so it just makes me respect so much more what francis ford coppola did with it um, one of my favorite aspects is that fact that not only is it, you know, giving Nina a lot of room, it gives Lucy a lot of room, which, yeah. you know, you could argue yeah, that Nina got Lucy. Yeah. L- Lucy is this like fun, kinky sort of like, um, like, I don't know, is it her best friend who's like, I, what, a, what would be a term that's not offensive? Like, she's just like sort of fun. She's, fri- she's free spirited. Very spirited. The movie is not judgmental of her, and she's like just a young woman who's just like much more in tune with the fact that she is at a point in her life where she's courting men, and she's like deciding like, okay, I might as well have some fun with this because otherwise I'm just going to be grim and stiff and awful for the next couple years. And she has my favorite horror scene in the whole movie. Uh, after she turns, she dies. She gets mauled by the wolf form. Yeah. She gets put in the tomb and they have to basically have a trial run for, for Dracula with the guys. It's, you know, group bonding to kill her. <laughs> and they go hide in her tomb and she walks down wearing this wedding dash burial dress. I know, like, boys used to wear dresses, like, as children. Did they also bury women in bridal gowns like it's an historical thing i don't know <laughs> oh, it, it's really well, you're, you're you're marrying jesus i don't know yeah exactly. yeah um, you're, you're really marrying weird. death i know sometimes women going to the gallows would wear like white like ornate white you know dresses what? it's it's the it's a nice dress um, you know, you're not going to get to wear any other dresses. Go, go nuts. Go nuts. It does That's have this, this very ornate veil. It's very like a uh, high fashion cause it's completely impractical. Anyways, uh, they, they hide in her tomb. She's carrying down a child. They, they basically startle her and she has pure white, white painted face and she drops the child. Child's fine. And then they have to kill Lucy and she sort of like yeah. darts at them and it's. 
I think it's the prettiest scene in the movie because of how Coppola uses natural lighting, yes, but also this like harsh blue light that is not natural in any world. Uh, it's it's moonlight times ten. It's like if the moonlight were a spotlight. It's ugh. It's a gorgeous scene. Uh, you guys have any other scenes left over at the, the end of the movie? The only thing I really quick is just I really there. This movie doesn't go for jump scares basically at all. A lot of people at the time actually kind of criticized it for not being that scary, but it does have I, – I think it's creepy scary and the monster design is is creepy scary. It's definitely, it's definitely a little bit too goofy to be like a true horror movie, but it does have one fucking great jump scare, which is where uh, you kind of get a close-up of like – I think it's – it's right. It's right after. Um, it's not Lucy. It's right after um, Dracula is is with Nina and then disappears and uh, goes invisible. And as they approach, all of a sudden, his like his creepiest form, his bat form, uh, flips out at them from like the ceiling. But for to the audience, it just flips down suddenly and fills up the entire frame. Uh, it's great. Oh my god! Yeah. That that is that is the image that I mentioned, like really lodged in my brain as a, <laughs> yeah, like that and old man Dracula. Like I don't know, I should look up on YouTube whatever the TV spots were for this because somehow these images made it into like the consciousness of six year old me. The thing for me that that the stray scene we mentioned it a couple of times is uh, is where does it take place? The fuck pit? He <laughs> <You> said, Aaron. <laughs> oh yeah, the fuck pit. But. The scene with with uh, where where Dracula's brides are, are seducing Harker, I, we've mentioned a little bit. I think that that this is uh, a movie where it's it's almost sort of a swan song for like in camera effects. Like Coppola was yeah. completely committed to no CGI, no uh, really as little sort of sophisticated quote unquote uh, special effects as you can, and so it it is timeless and eerie in a way that is really incredible among movies of the era and among movies at all. And the moment that has really hung with me is when the brides are, are uh, getting all up on Jonathan and then Dracula comes in and, and breaks up this orgy. There's this weird sort of, I can't even quite tell what's happening. If they're doing sort of a, a twin peaks, red room, they're acting backwards and then playing it forwards. Or if the, the camera is being cranked slowly or something, but the motions have this bizarre sort of almost, it looks like claymation or stop motion herky jerkiness to it. And it's not a, it's not a scary movie in the, in the traditional sense, but it's very, very eerie in moments like that. And he was so committed to whenever, you know, if we can't get this naturally, if we can't get this effect in camera, we're not doing it. And so we're going to figure out the best way to, I think I saw online, like he fired his special effects guy and just brought on his son or something to figure yeah. these things out. And, and it pays off so beautifully in moments like that, that are just, it's, it, it gets under your skin. Like you said about another moment. And that's, that's the only thing in my notes that I think we've pretty much covered everything else, but that, that one has really hung with me. That's a great point. Um, Aaron, do you have any final thoughts on the Drac attack? I feel like I say this a lot for this show, which is um, I'm so glad we picked it because it gave me an opportunity to revisit it. But it's such a common theme because I don't know about you guys, but I, as I get older and have less time to watch movies, rewatching is like a thing of the past for me almost. And, it, and that really sucks because there are so many movies. When I had the most time in my life to watch movies, it was when I was watching them on tiny TVs on VHS. 
So the 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 terror of an alien or the action-packed nature of a RoboCop or the fun action scenes of like a Lethal Weapon or a Die Hard, something like that, I saw all those for the first time on VHS. And those are movies that I kept watching over and over again throughout the years until TV technology and uh, home, home movie technology uh, advanced to the point that I was getting a much better experience of the movie I was watching because they were still on my favorite movie list. So I made time for them. And then there's like this other giant swath of movies like Dracula that I liked but just who has time to revisit that when between all the favorites you want to keep up with, all the stuff you just love so much and haven't seen in a few years, and then all the new stuff you want to watch. Like watching a movie that you remember liking and thinking was like, that's a good four-star movie. And one of the – you know, again, it's a personal advantage for me. But one of the advantages of this podcast is making time for these movies that I would have always been up for watching again, but who knows if or when I would have ever got around to it. So this movie especially is a movie that benefits from seeing it on a bigger screen and seeing it uh, in a better definition because it is all about not the story not even the performances. It is all about what's on uh, screen and the vision and the environment and the settings and all the weird background stuff that's going on throughout the movie. And if you're not seeing it like that, you are missing a big part of this movie. So, again, I always kind of stumped for this movie. I always said I liked it. I always said it was probably my favorite, like, named Dracula version that wasn't a Nosferatu. But I kind of, like, fell in love with it this time around. It's an easy movie to fall in love with, um, I think. If, if the aesthetic finds you, I think that it's a very easy movie to get pulled along with. Um, like I said earlier, the pacing is the smooth, operatic, flowing movement. The music really helps guide you. Music and the editing work in tandem to help really guide you through the movie. It's it's a little long, but it's like two hours, seven minutes. Like, I've seen a lot. It's not too bad. Yeah, like it's... It's no west of her. That's a, that's under 90. That's the sweet spot. Yeah, that's the sweet spot. Yeah. It's it's the best number of minutes. If um, it was 86, it would not feel like a real movie, but 87, I think you can get away with it. It's the golden... <laughs> I think it is the golden number, to be totally sincere. Especially if somebody watches a lot of horror movies, I'm like, this could have been 87. Anyways, yeah. um, it's hard to... It's hard to cut this off because I'm just so enamored with everything that this movie does. Um, the magic of it, I think, either speaks to you or it doesn't. Uh, I think that would be my final note on it because we've talked about why the reasons it works, the, the decisions that were made. This was not a producer hemmed in movie. This is all Francis Ford Coppola, it sounds like. So yeah. the movie is what the movie is. So you either love its magic or you don't. Or you're wrong. And so I think, or you're wrong. Thought, <laughs> I think my final thought is that this was a really cool opportunity to sort of reconsider Francis Ford Coppola, who it's weird to say that he maybe is, is a little underrated because we're talking about the guy who made some of the like famously best movies ever. Like this is the guy who made The Godfather, The Godfather 2 and Apocalypse Now in the conversation. And like those movies have almost been so canonized that you just chalk him up as disinteresting or, or it's it's easy to write him off as like he just makes 
big prestige movies, and especially if you haven't seen a lot of those movies in a long time, like I hadn't. But this inspired me to then go back and I, I rewatched his S.E. Hinton movies, The Outsiders and, and Rumblefish. I took a look at, at uh, some of his 21st century stuff, too. And, like, this is a guy who who had <laughs> – he's still making movies, kind of – has so much – energy and raw sort of creativity that it's it's too bad that that it almost feels like he has gotten uh sort of frozen in amber as one of the great filmmakers and so this was a really cool opportunity to remember like he he's just (laughs) he's got more creativity probably in in one finger than a lot of us would ever have uh in our whole damn bodies so this was this really cool as as an opportunity for that uh, but Ethan, thank you so much for coming on the show uh, again. Uh, I had so much fun talking to you. I really, as much as I make a lot of jokes about, it, I really did feel like I missed out last time, even hearing the wonderful episode that you guys put together. So it was very. Uh, I'm so happy we got to have this conversation. I hope that you uh, join us again uh, in the near future. Um, I hope you have me back. <laughs> absolutely. No, I had a great time. Um, if for nothing else than that, I just love making these quizzes for you. This is just so much fun. It's a good quiz. I feel like I could have beat Marcus and Peter last time, so I wanted to get in on the quiz. What? So we already kind of talked about what you have to promote, but why don't you tell some people where they can find it? I know we may have mentioned that before, but I'll include some some links in the show notes. But Yeah, well, West of Her is available, as I said, on all the typical streaming services, uh, Amazon, iTunes, Voodoo, uh, etc. Uh, probably your uh, cable box or your parents' cable box uh, if you're a cord cutter like me. And then uh, <laughs> I'm also a playwright. Um, my stuff gets produced every so often. Nothing on the horizon at the moment, but I'm working on some stuff. And then you can read my uh, critical writing about film. Uh, I have an essay just about every month at this point at Brightwall Dark Room, which is this really cool online film journal. Uh, that kind of takes a more sort of creative approach rather than your typical film reviews. So uh, my last couple, I wrote about Brigsby Bear in January uh, at the time of Great recording. Great piece. I, I will, thank you. I will have just had a piece come out about the documentary The Devil and Daniel Johnston uh, as of this Ooh, episode airing. that's a good one. And then I am just finishing up my piece on Steven Soderbergh's The Informant, which is one of my favorites oh. that I've done in a while, so... Yeah, it's my second uh, favorite Sodenberg after uh, uh, Schizopolis. But you can uh, you can find out all about all of my work at uh, ethanrawarren.com or I am Ethan R. A. Warren on Twitter as well. Awesome. This has been so fun. We are all running on empty right now because this was one of our longest recording sessions, but it's worth Call it. It's all still... Jackson Brown. We could do a second half of this episode, not tonight, but uh, because <laughs> there's so much more to talk about this movie, but I think we... We barely talked we... about Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> Barely. Barely. I'm just going to cut off her head and cut out her heart. It's fine. Yeah, Peter, what what do we have to... Uh, we have two more... We kind of talked about everything else we're doing, but as a reminder, in case you went to the bathroom in the middle of that part and didn't hit pause, what are we doing the rest of this month, Peter? Uh, Aaron, we have the movie King Kong by Peter Jackson. And uh, it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be an interesting conversation because we both have fond memories of it. But I think that uh, <laughs> I think that we have to actually like uh, come come back and like give an honest assessment of it. It's a little bit of a nostalgia audit episode. Uh, following and- that, we're gonna wrap the month up with the movie Spring. 
Yeah, and I have even fonder memories of recording that one. So, um, <laughs> this is such a fun month order-wise. But, guys, I think they're going to be really good episodes if we edit them right. If not... <laughs> I mean, I know all I know is what's raw right now. There's a lot of a lot of stuff I think in King Kong that can get right out of there, and then what you're gonna hear is pretty pretty good stuff. Uh, pretty good stuff. Pretty good stuff. Pretty, pretty uh, good, I think. Uh, all right, Ethan. Thank you so much for joining, and uh, we'll see you next week. Good night, guys. Love is eternal, but the podcast is not. It's getting kind of hard to believe things are going to get better. <laughs> I've been drowning too long to believe that the tide's going to turn And I've been living too hard to believe things are going to get easier now I'm still trying to shake off the pain from the lessons I've learned And if I see Van Helsing, I swear to the Lord I will slay him Ah, 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 he'd take you from me, but I swear I won't let it be so. Ah, 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 blood will run down his face when he is decapitated. Ah, his head on my mantle is how I will let this world know how much I love you. Hey, folks, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we've got just a few quick announcements for you. There ain't nothing in the rule book that says that we can't do some of our own plugs, baby. If you'd like to talk to us, uh, tell us we're stupid, tell us we're beautiful. The quickest way to get to us is our Facebook group, facebook.com slash we love to watch, or our website, wltwpodcast.com. Leave us a comment, tell us we're doing a good job. Only tell us we're doing a good job. We're so sensitive. We're sensitive boys. We're soft boys. And uh, if you'd like to help other people, if you enjoy our show and want other people to be able to listen to this fine, fine program that we produce at no cost, we don't get any money for this. You guys have yet to pay us anything. We live and we breathe off of good reviews from iTunes. So if you would please go to iTunes, review our show, give us a positive rating. We would love to get more and more people involved in this show and this community. I know you hear it all the time, but it really does help. And we're also available if you don't use iTunes. We're also available on Google Music, Stitcher, Tune in. We're currently on SoundCloud. We'll take that out if SoundCloud goes away. <laughs> That's it. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned, guys, on our Facebook page, especially. We're going to have a lot more polls, a lot more prizes, and a lot more uh, interaction with you guys. So keep it tuned in. Uh, let us know what you guys are thinking. And again, above all else, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch.